Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. Joining you, as always, Mr. Mark Daly of Vancouver, British Columbia, and also Mr. Mark Hamilton. It's for those of you that don't know, we are basically neighbors. We never knew we lived <laughs> in this neighborhood. We were both doing rival podcasts a year ago today, and we joined forces over the winter. So thank you for joining us. We've got a, a pretty great show today. So we're a couple of days away from the British Grand Prix, or as what I like to refer to as the first ever Formula One major. We're going to see sprint qualifying for the first time this coming Saturday. Super exciting, but we're not going to talk about that at all today. Tune in Friday for our Thursday recorded show, but we have a whole you, bunch of stuff. You naughty, naughty man. What a tease you are Tease, tease. <laughs> I learned from the best. I learned from the best. My friend, before we get you started, how are you doing? I'm not doing too bad, despite a completely insanely busy Monday. And full disclosure, I am completely unprepared for the show tonight because I've gone from one thing to the another to another. But you know, welcome to the show of bad and poorly informed takes. So let's let's just let's just go with that tonight. Oh my goodness! You never know who's <laughs> listening. We could have Bill Simmons listening. We could have Ryan Rossillo listening. We could have somebody listening in, hoping to sign us to a big, lucrative, multi-year podcast contract, and that may now be may have now well, evaporated. You you can blame my mom for that because she always said <laughs> honesty is the best policy. So. I guess either I'm going to make it big or I'm going to die a poor man and because of my policy of honesty right. first. But at least right. my conscience will be clear, maybe. <laughs> I love it. And I love the humility. This summer's been unusual for a number of reasons, one of which, of course, is that we're watching a really great Formula One championship unfold as a result of COVID. We're still watching the NBA finals here in the middle of July. I'm not going to complain weird, about having it? the NBA no. <laughs> in the summer. The NHL just wrapped up and mm -hmm. the Habs have been able to put up a more of a battle. We might have seen that series get extended a little bit. But yesterday, I think a lot of us, myself included, I know you're watching and tens of millions of people around the world tuned in to watch the UEFA European final between Italy and England at Wimbledon. Again, I know this is a Formula One podcast, and trust me, there's a really strong segue coming, but I think a lot of us tuned in because this is a, a matchup of two historically strong European mm -hmm. soccer powerhouses. Of course, England hadn't won or hasn't won a international or championship of any significance really since 1966. But unfortunately, here we are the day after, and once again, nobody is talking about the match at all. Your thoughts on what transpired over the weekend? Well, let's just put it this way. I, I'm English on my dad's side, Dutch on my mother's side. So when it comes to international football, I'm usually disappointed by one or the <laughs> other or both countries in any international tournament. So it doesn't matter if it's the Euros, the World Cup. So I'm kind of used to it, but that was doubly 
disappointing yesterday. I mean, because it had the vibe of a you know the whole football's coming home that that whole play on the, the the Frank Skinner song from like twenty years ago, which has sort of become I guess sort of the subtext for the whole thing. But it was really a dream start for England. Luke Shaw opening the scoring after only what two three minutes into the match, and England was looking strong, but Italy slowly but surely grew into the game. And you just felt at some point that the equalizer was going to come. But I thought that last 15, 20, 25 minutes was awfully sloppy. And the closer it got to full time, as soon as we got, the closer we got to the full 90 minutes, it just had penalties written all over it. And I was really hoping that one of those two teams, oh, preferably England, of course, would have pulled something out of the bag in extra time. But sadly, it didn't happen. And it went to penalties. And penalties is always a lottery. And full credit to both teams, but unfortunately there was just some missed kicks and some brilliant saves, and it's just, you know, if you get to that stage in a major tournament like that, I always hate it to be decided on penalties, but whatever. It is what it is. England lose, Italy win. Congratulations to all our friends, especially our boy Vincenzo Landini, who's probably listening in and is probably still nursing a hangover, but uh, I'm sure that he's really enjoyed himself. His live streaming and tweeting us at one point, which is pretty cool. Absolutely. And of course, congratulations to Canadian F1 driver, uh, Nicholas Latifi, whose mother is also Italian and very proudly pronounced on Twitter before the game, who his... (laughs) Who his allegiances obviously were aligned with going into that title. Now, you, I you think, think a guy yeah. coming from Toronto, like uh, it, there's got to be some, like not overgeneralizing uh, by by any means, but there has to be some sort of Italian connection there somewhere, right? Absolutely. I mean, very big uh, Italian community in the six. Now, unfortunately, and this is a story that seems to have dogged, I don't even want to say European football or British football, but very specifically English football for decades. We really started to see the ugly underbelly of English hooliganism and the darker racist undercurrents of fandom in that country start to emerge over the last couple of weeks. One of the things that was well reported heading into this game was that there was as many as two to 3,000 non-ticketed fans that had forced their way into the stadium, were occupying seats, were occupying the concourse. Things that I think those of us in North America would be really, really, I think it's challenging to comprehend or contextualize some of the things that were happening. Now, by all accounts, it was an ugly affair. Put aside what happened on the field. Mm -hmm. There was violence in the stadium. There was violence on the concourse. There were large swarms of individuals that showed up at Wembley for no other reason than to make trouble. One of the stories that we have here, and this is, this is very, very alarming to me. And I think it's something that's largely been certainly not glossed over, but in the shadow of all of the stories that came out over the last couple of days leading up to the title and, of course, coming out of the title, was the fact that Lando Norris was in attendance at the game, as were many other very, very uh, popular British celebrities, including members of the royal family. But Lando getting into his McLaren GT in the parking lot of Wembley post-game was robbed of his Richard Mill watch. And this was Mm -hmm. a custom one-off piece that was uh, presented to him by the McLaren team. Of course, that watchmaker, that switch watchmaker is a, is a constructor of a fine and glamorous, uh, highly priced watches. Ultimately, this is deeply troubling to me that this could happen in this modern age in 2021. And 
I'm, I'm frustrated at the lack of security at the complex. I'm frustrated that he didn't have personal security. I'm frustrated that the team would adorn him with a watch that might be worth upwards of $400,000, put him a $165,000 McLaren GT and send him off to the stadium. I, I think we're very, very lucky that this didn't turn out worse for Lando. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, I haven't confirmed this, but I was reading some reports in the British press this morning that apparently Wembley didn't want to pony up the cash to pay for the extra policing, so they just had stadium staff and stewards, which are just basically security guards and you know people in, in high-vis vest. I mean, it's not really... I would say, overly trained to deal with a situation of that nature, unfortunately. And I, I don't want to say that they're merely ushers, but they just were not equipped to, to handle that situation. But you saw thousands of people rushing into the stands and, and bursting through gates and things like that. I mean, extremely disturbing scenes. Absolutely. And I think they were saying that uh, the the match was going to be capped at something like 66,000 fans or something like that. And I'm not sure what the, the capacity of the New Wembley is. It's 72, 75,000, something like that. So for, for those of you listening to North America, let, let's say an NFL-sized stadium or a very big uh, college-sized uh, stadium. And they were saying that there were people in this, just sitting in the aisles. It was, it was pretty obvious just looking at it on TV that there was more than 66,000 people there because you would have expected to see a lot of uh, empty seats. So very disturbing to see the distinct lack of security, the people rushing in, and of course, all the, the, the nasty stuff that came out afterwards, especially on social media, specifically targeting some of the players like Marcus Rashford, who unfortunately missed a penalty, hit the post. And I was thinking to myself, okay, well, as soon as Marcus hit the post, I figured, okay, here come here comes all the crap on social media, all the racist Absolutely. crap. And, un, and unfortunately, that was, it was the most obvious comment or thought of the entire day. And Disappointing on, on many fronts. You would think in 2021, we would have moved beyond stuff like this, but sadly not. I don't think I could have summarized it better than you did. I I had the exact same thought watching those penalties. It wasn't necessarily that this is a tremendous moment for English football. The fact mm -hmm. that they've gotten this far in a tournament, perhaps where people didn't expect them to achieve a, a whole lot. And here we are playing before a home crowd. And the only thing I could think of is... If they don't win this, the torrent of racist filth that is going to come forward through social mm -hmm. media is going to be mind-boggling. It's going to be blinding. And to me, it wasn't even a question of whether it was going to happen. It was just a matter of how quickly is it going to happen. And unfortunately, once again, the fact that England qualified for the final, they came this far, they, they lost in the penalty, it just gives a platform for this hopefully very small, vile, disgusting segment of the English population to have a platform. And, and it was terrible. And this is a great, great opportunity to segue into a social media post that, that Lewis put up earlier today, where he said, so much was running through my mind as I watched the final moments of the match last night. On the one hand, I was so proud of how, how far we've come. To be in the final and with such a diverse team is a huge mm -hmm. achievement we should all be proud of. But as the players stepped up to take the penalties, I was worried. The pressure yep. to deliver is felt by every sports person. But when you are a minority representing your country, this is a layered experience. Success would feel like a double victory, but a miss feels like a twofold failure when it's compounded with racist 
abuse. So I don't hmm. think anyone could have said it better than Lewis in that moment. And totally. I appreciate that he he received a tremendous amount of negativity himself for taking such a strong stand on social justice last year. But I applaud him that in this moment, there's a counterbalance to all that negativity that came forward on social media. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't really have anything. I mean, what what else could you add to such eloquent and and such heartfelt uh, words that Lewis has uh, put to a, de- a digital paper? Let's put it that way. And yeah, just uh, you had that sinking feeling. And uh, again, poor Orlando as uh, as well. I mean, he it was said today that he was understandably shaken after the experience. I mean, you think uh, being uh, you know attacked by a bunch of thugs in the parking lot and. I mean, he's probably thinking, okay, well, it really sucks that I lost my one-off custom watch, but it could have been a lot worse, right? I mean, did they even know that it was Lando Norris? Or they figured it's just some rich guy in, a, in his McLaren GT, so he's got to have something worth uh, stealing. And unfortunately, they got his one-of-a-kind one of 40,000-pound watch, just uh, insane. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think we're probably ready for a break at this point before we jump into the, uh, the next line of stories. Are we? I don't know. Let me check the clock. Oh, well, we got about three minutes before we come up on our traditional 15-minute break. So if you've got something you can I compress do. into the next three minutes, I which is a big do. ask of, you, of, of us, I know. go for it. I think one of the criticisms of both of us is that we're a little bit long-winded, and I no. see each other getting impatient <laughs> with each other as we speak. But Formula One is ready to act as the Hamilton Commission report has been released. So if you don't remember last year, Hamilton, Lewis Hamilton, of course, seven times F1 world champion. He might have heard of him once or twice, especially on this show. Uh, Lewis <laughs> partnered up last year with the Royal Academy of Engineers in the United Kingdom to perform a really deep dive and thorough analysis and study on the lack of specifically black representation in UK motorsports. So UK motorsports is deeper and richer than possibly in any country in the world other than the United States, which of course Mm -hmm. has stock car racing, IndyCar, et cetera. Motorsport is a huge deal in the UK. But one of the things that has generally been understood is that diversity and diverse representation is very small. And the effort of this study was to try and understand why only about one half to 1% of all of those involved in the industry and the ecosystem that supports British motorsport is black. So they've completed the study. It sounds like Formula One is very much eager to start implementing some of the recommendations. And amongst them, the commission has outlined 10 recommendations that it believes need to be followed to achieve improved diversity in motorsport. And this is good because while the study really talks about uh, the involvement of talented black engineers and aero designers and mechanics and things like that, it really speaks even to a, a broader understanding of the need that Formula One has to diversify. But amongst them, asking that F1 and other motorsports teams take the lead in implementing a diversity and inclusion charter, calling for F1 teams and other motorsport businesses to broader access to motorsport by expanding their apprenticeship programs, the mm-hmm. establishment of new ex- of a new exclusions innovation fund to develop programs that address the factors that contribute to the high proportion of students from black backgrounds being excluded from the schools that typically feed the Formula One teams. And it's generally mm-hmm. understood that there's really only four schools in all of the UK that actually feed into F1 teams. And unfortunately, black representation in those schools has been very low. Mm-hmm. Supporting the piloting of new approaches to increase the number of black students or black teachers in STEM, uh, STEM subjects, supporting the creation of scholarship programs to enable black graduates from degrees in engineering and allied subjects to progress into specialized uh, motorsports roles. And finally, 
calling for additional STEM activity support to be provided to supplementary schools led by black community groups across the UK. So I think one of the criticisms of Hamilton last year was, look, you're going to take this position, you're going to take a knee, you're going to post on social media, but what are you doing to enforce change? And I think one of the things that's Lewis has always been unfairly criticized for is Mm -hmm. he doesn't take action. He talks, he talks, he doesn't take action, but he does. And I think this study, this commission is a perfect example of he working with the Royal Academy of Engineers in the UK to study the sport and come forward with recommendations. And by all accounts, it sounds like the teams, the sport, the FIA are very, very much uh, compelled and very much invested in incorporating many of these recommendations as quickly as possible. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, recommendations and things like that are one thing. And I, I know this is just isn't empty words or anything like that on the behalf of the, the, the Hamilton Commission and Lewis Hamilton. But I mean, the thing is, they need to be implemented. These the, uh, Formula One has to embrace this or they don't. It can't be this sort of a half-hearted approach because we were lukewarm let's just put it that way over the whole we races one thing that they did last year we felt that it it didn't really it kind of had a half-hearted approach to it, it i think it was the way that good. it was it yeah. was not yeah. good enough it was not good enough it was very much window dressing and i think the mm-hmm. whole, and not to suggest some of the drivers weren't invested because i think if you look most of them were but i think really it was it was lewis leading by leading by example, some of the other drivers that kind of fell into line, some of that were probably very much emotionally invested. But I think as an effort on behalf of Formula One, and you even saw it in the quality of the coverage that those moments had during the broadcast early in the seasons, it was being cut out. It wasn't covered at all during the national mm-hmm. broadcast, et cetera. So it wasn't good enough. And I think you and I can both agree to that. Yeah, totally. Well, I'm glad to see that they came out with the report. It's been released. They've got all these wonderful recommendations. I want to see implementation and adoption and see results of it, hopefully sooner rather than later. Okay, Mark, uh, what, what's next? Why don't we take our break? We'll come back and we're, are we going to keep going with the news or are we going to delve into the mailbag? Because I know it's bursting at the seams again this We've got week. some great stuff. So I've got one one more story that I love okay. to cover because I want to make sure we capture it this week. And then sure. to your point, we've got some great tweets. We've got some great emails to dive into. Awesome. Well, let's do that in a moment. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back on the flip side. So don't go away. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, welcome back to the show. You're listening to the podcast is always up to speed with Formula One with Mark and Mark, Mr. Daly, Mr. Hamilton in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. Lovely summer day today. Temperatures somewhat cooler, the sky less hazy-ish. 
but it's just uh, it's it's been a nice couple of days. Anyways, you have at least one or two more stories that uh, you want to get into before we attack the mailbag. So let's have at it. Awesome. Fantastic. If any of you are familiar with, uh, I think, our passion for Twitter and for Reddit, <laughs> you'll know that we we cover the entire gauntlet of what's out there in terms of commentary, in terms of insight, in terms of memes. But one of the things that surfaced a couple of weeks ago were some stolen spy shots of a partially finished 2022 F1 carcass. So it looked to be in these photos, a largely complete full-scale replica of what the 2022 F1 cars were going to look like. So these were some spy shots. They were snuck out of somewhere and no one knew where they came from, but it gave us our first sense of what the 2022 cars are going to look like. Our first sense of scale, our first sense of presence, and our first sense of design. Well, to my, to my surprise, I woke up this morning and I saw all over social media the fact that the teams and Formula One and Liberty in tandem were announcing that this coming Thursday at I think 1530, 1500 BST, so about mm-hmm. three o'clock British Standard Time, way too early on the West Coast, they are going to be unveiling what will be largely a finished template 2022 Formula One race car. So this is exciting because this will be our first official glimpse at what the 2022 cars are going to look like. Now, they've also teased that they're going to have a very, very, very strong panel that's going to be there that will be providing insights into many of the design choices. They'll be talking about some of the engineering background and contextualization and a lot of the things that led to the design of the car that they'll be to answer some questions from the media as well, potentially some questions from fans via different social media channels. But on Thursday, we are going to have our first look, our first slice of the 2022 car. It's exciting because the timing lines up with our show so we'll be able to talk about our uh, first impressions of the car mm-hmm. during our thursday night recording so for the friday show but i'm excited and i can't believe we're at this point where really now we're five six seven months away from winter testing and seeing these cars on the track for the first time well it basically is three years of patiently waiting coming to <laughs> fruition even though it's not going to be a mercedes it's not going to be a ferrari it's not going to be a red bull it is going to be like you say a good look at what we can expect going into next year and i'm excited because this is what three and a half years in the making it, it, when did they first tease us with that was it was the beginning of 2018 2018 march 2018 then, yeah and then it's really kind of went underground for a long time while they really hammered out the details and eventually decided to adopt it and move forward and then it got pushed back because of covid and yeah it's been a long and exhausting difficult wait but i'm excited because one of the things i love to do each and every year is is go through and rank the cars like we did our march madness car ranking this year livery ranking uh, just before the start of the season so this is like the same thing but it's going to be next level i'm really excited to see who they're going to have on the panel You'd have to think Ross Braun's going to be there, but all right. the other boffins and nerds and all these brilliant F1 minds that that have really put, uh, you know, had some input into the design of these cars are, are going to be there. And I think it's going to be wonderful because I'm really looking forward to hear hopefully somewhat understandable tech talk that could really kind of distill it and give us normal people the essential the essential elements of what they decided to do and why they decided to opt for these certain design features and parameters to design these new cars. I'm really excited. Can't wait. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And the things that we know, we know obviously that the power units are frozen for 2022, 23, yep. 24, potentially 2025, because I think they'd like to take a little bit more time and really firm up what that 2026 power unit is going to look like, especially if they're possibly going to run it for as long as a decade. But what we don't really know is how the rest of the car is going to come together. We keep talking about the fact that there's going to be pretty significant aero designs. And even in that teaser photo that Formula One posted with that car, just the silhouette of the car against that completely flooded back black background, you can see how dramatically different that front wing is. You can see how dramatically different that rear wing is. I want to learn more about the aero, but some of the things that we don't know a lot about are mm -hmm. how is the suspension going to interface with those new 18-inch wheels where the tires themselves are no longer part of the suspension setup? How are how is the floor of the car going to work? The side pods, there's so much that we don't know. And I think me especially, I've been focusing on the 18-inch wheels and the change in aero design, but there's so much more. The change of the car goes so much deeper than that that I'm excited to learn. But it's going to tee up a really great weekend, right? Like I keep talking mm -hmm. about the British Grand Prix this year as being the first ever major sprint qualifying, qualifying on Friday. On Thursday, we get a sneak peek of the 2022 car. This weekend is going to be pretty special. And hopefully, hopefully the Grand Prix on Sunday uh, warrants warrants the attention that this weekend's <laughs> going to get. Well, I hope so too. And it really is uh, an exciting weekend to come. And I, I, can't, I can't wait for it. And I should just mention that just listening to all these different things that we're talking about, I'm getting that really strong vibe that I should probably take the entire day off of work. Work, just so I can sit down, go and watch this press conference, listen to the breakdown on the tech side, then spend about like 12 hours trying to figure it out for myself so we can sit down, record the show and then release it. And then I might have a, at least an inkling of understanding of what's going on. But cool. I really looking forward to the whole weekend. Totally. My, my strategy will be to watch it live. Yep. rewatch it, read all of the posts on Reddit. And then finally, <laughs> when I still don't understand it, one of our listeners, Bryson, I'm just going to find some of his posts about it where he distills it down into about 280 characters. And then I'll probably have a better understanding of what's going on. But you know what? This is actually a perfect segue <laughs> into our first mailbag question. I'm going to pose this sure. question to you. So this okay. is this comes from Thomas Beto. It's a great question. Hey guys, love the show. This is my first season following F1 and it is awesome. I know 2022 is a complete rebuild for all teams with new regulations and nobody knows who will come out on top in 2022, but that statement seems a bit forced. It feels like most who cover the sport still believe in Red Bull or Mercedes over the field for 2022 and beyond. Why is that? Yeah, great question. And it is a great I don't question. think there's there. Uh, it, it's difficult to answer, isn't it? Right? Yeah. Because when you think about it, it is the big unknown. We're going to see a brand new car on Thursday, but it's just going to be a generic car. It's not a Mercedes. It's not a Ferrari. It's not a Williams. It's not a Haas. It's just it's basically, a it's, a, it's template. a template, 100%. So it's going to give us a good idea of what the cars are mostly going to look like. Now, the only advantage that I would give to uh, Mercedes and Ferrari and Red Bull and the big teams is that even though we are in this cost cap era, you have to give them the distinct advantage over your Williamses and your Hasses and teams like that because even though they're all supposedly spending the same amount of money under the cost cap, is that they are the premier teams in Formula One and ergo, they are more likely to have more resources and, and brain power just within that organization just to be able to design and build a better car. You just that that's that's the only reason I can think because on paper 
I, I don't see any reason why a McLaren couldn't come in and surprise anyone or an Alpine, like any one of these midfield teams. Somebody might just get it right. But logically thinking that just the experience and the personnel and the brain power, I'd say the big three gives them that that leg up as it did this year and last year and the year before and since time immemorial, right? You absolutely nailed it. And I, I would agree with all of your points there. I, I had jotted down before the show a couple of points. I think obviously the fact that the power units being frozen typically will benefit or should benefit the teams who are seeing really strong performance out of the power units this year. Obviously, that plays into Red Bull's strength. They seem to have the best power unit on the grid right now, both from a reliability perspective in terms yep. of developing significant top-end power. And I think you really summarized it in, in a really great way when you talked about a couple of other bullet points here. One, these are teams that, despite the fact that we're really now deeply entrenched in this cost cap error, teams like Mercedes and Red Bull and Ferrari have had financial resources at their disposal for some time that these other teams haven't had. And that's helped them do a couple of things. One, it's helped them with their internal people capital. So historically, they've been able to fill their factories with the best people in the industry. They're able to recruit from other teams. They're able to recruit from the best schools. They've got mm -hmm. the best people. And then the other thing that this cash has enabled them to do over the course of the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years is build out the best physical infrastructure. So I'm talking about having the best factories, having the best vehicles, having the best wind tunnels, having the best server racks and server farms to feed and fuel their CFD, their computational fluid dynamics machines, like all of that kind of stuff. Those are still things that they have, even if they're under operating under a cost cap. And then I think the other thing that plays into this as well is a lot of these teams have already invested in physical infrastructure for things like machining. So if mm -hmm. you're a bigger team, you're a Mercedes or you're a Red Bull, you're probably not relying on third-party suppliers to feed you the nuts and bolts that help you assemble the car. You're probably machining a lot of that internally. And if you're machining it internally and you've already paid off that hardware, you've made that investment, that's now a sunk cost that you're not paying for again. But if you're a yep. smaller team and you're relying on third-party suppliers for all of the nuts and bolts, and I use that as an example, well, you're at the mercy of their pricing. So you may ultimately be paying more for a nut or a bolt than one of the bigger teams that can just machine it internally. So I think there's some distinct advantages there, but I think uh, I, I would still have to think that Red Bull, that Mercedes and possibly McLaren are probably going to be the front runners next year. Now, I hope, I hope we're wrong. And to your earlier point, somebody else just gets that formula right. Like if we look back to 2009, Braun just got it right yeah, with that double diffuser. They came out of yeah. nowhere. Hopefully we see that next year. Yeah, a great point. Absolutely. I mean, Braun is that one shining example that stands out and they probably will for people that have been following the sport since that time or people that have gone back to learn about it. And you may really make a great point too when it just comes to like the, 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 the big teams and other teams like McLaren. They really have that infrastructure in place already in terms of hardware, software, infrastructure, right. you know, people, brain power and everything like that. And that does give them a, a distinct advantage over the, 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 the smaller teams as well. So again, it it really kind of makes you hope that somebody is going to find some magic solution. And that's what makes it really exciting to see who gets it right and who gets it wrong. Absolutely. <laughs> well, maybe not the ones that get it wrong. Speaking of getting it right or getting it wrong, especially going yep. into the new cost cap era, obviously next year we're going to see new arrow, we're going to see new chassis, we're going to see new mm -hmm. wheels. One of the things that we're going to see a transition from is Honda departing the sport, which I think mm -hmm. we've documented 
disrupted at length. And the fact that ultimately their IP is being absorbed by Red Bull in a really, really unique transactional transactional statement. So a question here for you, and, and I can take a stab at this one as well, but I'd love to tee sure. it up to you. A question here from Alex Bernhardt. Good afternoon, Mark and Mark. I was listening to your Friday 709 podcast and during the conversation of Audi and Porsche possibly being interested in F1 and how expensive it is, I began to be curious about Red Bull and the separation of Honda. So of course, Honda has been supplying with them with power units for a couple of years now. What does this mean for Red Bull? Are they still going to be using a version of the Honda power unit in the 2022 season? Or does this mean they're going to have to develop their own search for other options? After such a powerful start to the 2021 season, I imagine this is a worst case scenario for Red Bull and must raise concerns. Love the podcast and love how the American audience is growing. You both do a wonderful job at explaining for newer F1 fans. So thank you for the email. I'd love to tee this one up to you. Yeah, that's a great question. And let's 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 just be honest up, up front about it. Red Bull did not buy the Honda IP just solely as a, as a short-term thing. This is a medium to obviously a long-term commitment because they're throwing significant amount of money at, at doing this. So if they have to step uh, away from this experiment and and go back to being a customer team, that would be absolutely worst case scenario. Because a big thing for Red Bull, don't forget, is the fact that they really pushed hard for that engine freeze. And the, the engine freeze that is in place until 25 or 26 is due in large part to, to Red Bull. And that was a big reason that they took the plunge and decided to take over that Honda IP, which, you know, it's, it's really happening at them at absolutely the the right time because Honda has thrown everything into that power unit this year to make sure that it is the best, most powerful, reliable engine that they can give Red Bull to help them win a championship, hopefully both of them, before they exit the sport this year. And in doing so, I mean, it really sets up a Red Bull very, very nicely over the next uh, several years. So I would think that they're going to be Sticking with this through thick and thin, I mean, they become a, an outright constructor 100% now. Absolutely. And I, I don't see them walking away from this anytime soon, unless it becomes a horrible mistake. But I don't think that they, let, let's just put it this way. I think they would have done their research. They would have done their uh, due diligence before they took the plunge. When Honda announced at the beginning of October last year that they were leaving the sport, I think it came as a shock to a lot of folks. It felt like Mm -hmm. even last year that despite all of the trials and tribulations through that McLaren marriage that they were really starting to gain some traction, for the lack of a better pun, of course, it felt like they were starting to get some real traction with Red Bull. So the fact that they were departing at that point seemed to be a a little bit surprising. Obviously, for everyone really that kind of operates in the Formula One ecosystem, the, the Formula One circle, I think we were all quite disappointed because a lot of F1's legitimacy is stemmed from the fact that there are so many different OEMs and manufacturers that are invested in producing power units and participating in the sport. And when a big company like Honda walks away, it's it tarnishes the brand a little bit. So it was exciting to both of us that Red Bull were willing to eventually take over that IP and start developing those engines internally. And to your earlier point, they, they'd expressed interest in doing so quite early on, but they had real reservations about buying the IP and taking over the operation if they were going to immediately have to pick up development of that engine and continue to compete with the other teams. So they lobbied, just as you mentioned, for an engine freeze from 2022, 3, 4. They're still pushing for a freeze for 2025. So they've, they're able to start that process of integrating 
the IP mm-hmm. into their process flows into their company. They spun off a new company late last year or early this year. Actually, I think it was around late February. They spun off a new yep. company called Red Bull Powertrains Limited, which infers that they're probably willing to also be a supplier to other teams, which is something I would expect to see over the course of the next two or three or four or five years, especially if other companies choose to become invested in F1, but absolutely. And I, I'm very, very, very excited to see what they can do with this IP. And obviously nothing should change significantly over the next couple of years due to the the power unit development freeze. But again, very, very excited that they were able to capture that IP and ensure that a different, more distinct brand continues to produce power units. So we don't get down to a two or a three units championship. Exactly. And uh, Nigel Veli, the live chat, has a great point. And uh, they say it doesn't sound like they're departing until 2023. RBR is still basically going to be using rebranded Honda engines until then. Absolutely. And I think that's a great point. And I think the best way to maybe um, equate it to is the Renault takeover of Lotus in 2015, when basically they became a works team again. They basically were running a rebranded Lotus that, that first year back, just running the gold and black of, uh, of Renault. So basically, it's, it might be called a Red Bull engine next year. But all underneath that, it's all going to be Honda until they they transition. So it's going to be a transitionary uh, period. So that that's a, that's a great call. That's a great call. And I, yeah. it seems like every single time I talk on this show, I somehow drag it back into the NBA or to the Braun GP <laughs> team in 2009. But the other thing that was interesting as well, and I encourage everyone to do your research on Braun GP in 2009 because it's still one of the most fascinating stories in the history of yeah. F1. But when Honda pulled out of F1, because they had a works team, when Honda pulled out of F1 at the end of 2009, and ultimately a small consortium led by Ross Braun saved the team. Honda actually gave Braun GP $100 million to continue operations for that season. So they couldn't supply power units or wouldn't supply power units. But ultimately, Ross Braun and his team took that $100 million linked up with Mercedes and started feeding Mercedes <laughs> power units into what was a car designed for Honda engines. And of course, the backstory is even greater because it goes into the divorce between McLaren and Mercedes, which we'll actually talk about in a couple of minutes here. Cool. Well, why don't we uh, break here? This is another good uh, spot for a quick break. And uh, we'll do just that when we come back on the other side. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, well, we're back and we're answering emails, we're answering tweets, we're talking about very obscure Formula One knowledge and things like that, but it's all good. It's part of the fun. So what's up next? Is the mailbag getting any emptier? Probably not, right? We've got a couple of questions, but I want to touch on a really exciting story. At least it's exciting for me. If you don't remember, a couple of weeks ago, we invested $60 into buying a pack of Topps Chrome 2020 F1 Mm -hmm. cards. And the hope was 
We were going to strike gold. We were going to get that one of one autograph Lewis Hamilton card. We'd be able to quit this show, buy a yacht, move to Monaco and watch Grand Prix for the rest of our lives. Of course, Mm -hmm. we didn't strike gold. We made about $3 worth of the cards out of that pack. But and ironically, you got the Valtteri Bottas right off the top of the right deck. Right off which the was top. Of course it was karma, a Bottas. Karma, karma. <laughs> the, the only thing that would have been better if it was a Bottas and then a George Russell card, but got the that Bottas. Awesome. Although to be fair, some of our listeners actually reached out afterwards and said, hey, that is itself a fairly rare card. It's probably worth $60 on itself. So I haven't cool. verified that, but I have hopes that I can at least finish net zero and having not lost <laughs> any money on that purchase. But a great story that came out of small town Quebec, over the weekend. So there's a small town in Quebec called Chicoutimi. No one outside of Canada will ever have heard of this lovely little community, but there is a sports collectible shop in that town. On the weekend, right before closing, about an hour before they sh- they closed shop on the weekend on Saturday, a couple of young folks walked into the store and they were looking around and they were talking about sports and talking about Formula One. Of course, Formula One is big in Quebec. And they got mm-hmm. talking to- about the fact that these Tops F1 cards are doing really well and that some folks had recently bought a few packs and struck gold. Somebody got a $3,000 card. Somebody got a $4,000 wow. card. And one of the young shoppers that were in the store said, you know what? I'll take a shot. Give me a pack of those cards for 60 bucks. So he paid his money. They handed him over a pack of these tops cards and he was having some trouble opening the pack. So he ultimately handed over to the shopkeeper and the shopkeeper's like, no problem at all. I can open this for you. And he tore the pack open and right on the top of the pack was the card that everybody in the world is looking for, which is the one of one signed Lewis Hamilton ultra rare collectible card so nobody yet understands what the value is because there's only one of them so the market is going to set the rate early on people were suggesting it could be 50,000 100 152 250,000 dollars or more but the shopkeeper saw it and this great story had to translate it out of french basically had a heart attack and couldn't breathe because he knew what he had (laughs) but he was so excited he couldn't articulate to the actual customer what he had in his hands so they sealed it up they packaged up right away very exciting it broke the news it played across all the news outlets across quebec over the course of the weekend it didn't get picked up in the rest of the world because because of course it was French language press, but ultimately very exciting. The other exciting thing is there's another one of one Lewis Hamilton card that is identical, but without the signature that was actually found in Japan on Sunday. So possibly the two most valuable cards produced were found over the weekend. And what's really interesting is the prices of all of the existing stock unopened boxes and unopened cards appear to be crashing because this is the card that everybody's been looking for. Mm -hmm. And now that people know it's found, the value of all of the unopened stock is crashing. And the whole situation plays to me like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the original, totally when everyone right. was looking for that golden ticket and there was mm-hmm. that young girl whose dad owned a factory and they had all their factory opens open sing, every single pack trying to find that golden ticket. That kind of played out to me, but I was excited. I thought the story was very, very cool. Kudos for yep. Formula One for connecting with tops because of course, sports collectibles couldn't be any bigger in the US now with this flush of cash after the, the COVID pandemic, but just a very, very cool story. So basically, I could go down to the lo- local sports card shop here in Port Moody and probably pick up a pack for like 15 bucks tomorrow or 10 bucks <laughs> or something. <laughs> Trust me, I oh, actually, cool. I, call, I know which one you're talking about. We have yep. a sports card. I did call them a few months ago and they absolutely want no part of this. They have no Formula One cards, unfortunately. 
Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So another question, and this is kind of going back to that point that I was teasing at a couple of minutes ago. And I thought this question is fantastic because it's not something that you or I have ever talked about on the show before, but the question comes from a listener, Hernandez. Hey, Mark. And by the way, I love when the listeners start emails or tweets with, Hey, Mark, because they get it right. No matter who reads the email. <laughs> hey, Mark, I have a couple of questions for you. I know time is limited, but I'm hoping you're able to address them during your podcast. After Lewis won his first championship with McLaren. And for those of you that don't know, that was 2008 after coming ever so close in 2007. What was it that drew him to Mercedes at the end of his McLaren contract? Was it money? From what I've gathered, the Merck team was underperforming during that team. Was the F1 community expecting a resurgence of the seer or the, of the silver arrows? As always, I appreciate the insight y'all provide. Keep up the great work, Carlos. Well, number one, I think that's Carlos in Houston, if I'm not mistaken, which is awesome. Thank you, Carlos, Thank you, for Carlos. sending us the email. And... Yeah, that that is a great question. I mean, he nails it on the on the head. I mean, Mercedes at that point were absolutely underperforming. I mean, they it took them a while to really hit their stride once they came back into Formula One. I mean, we'll all remember that. Well, those of us that that were around, that was the the second iteration. I want to call it of uh, Michael Schumacher's Formula yeah. One career. It was the Michael and- Jordan. Washington Wizards face for our American listeners. Absolutely. That is the 100%. perfect, the perfect parallel. Think Michael Jordan yep. with the Washington Wizards. Disappointment yep. and mediocrity. Yeah, 100%. That, I think that that is the greatest uh, comparison that uh, that you could have made. Yeah, Washington Wizards, Michael Jordan. And yeah, they, they just... It really took them a while to to really, no pun intended, get up to speed. And it really... This was a team that was really looking ahead to the turbo hybrid era. Right. I mean, they really were building for that, really looking forward to that era. But even coming into 2014, all those years ago, I mean, I think there was no real expectation that they would be as successful as they were. Because, I mean, if you look at the modern era of uh, Mercedes and Formula One, it it is really black and white. I mean, they're polar opposites you know, performances. I mean, they went from a, a, a mid of grid middle of the pack kind of team to this undefeatable behemoth juggernaut that has been basically bulletproof until 2021 right and so it it really is a fascinating situation a tale of two completely different teams that are still called uh, mercedes but now when it comes to lewis and his switch to mercedes I, i i have to admit that without going back and really reading about it again my memory is a little bit foggy and around this time like a 2013 i i really don't recall a lot of what transpired in and around the time that he switched from mclaren to mercedes it's a great question and it works the time it works out because i was actually out with one of my friends recently who is a was a diehard mclaren fan and we had a really great conversation about this and the mm-hmm. way he articulated was this he's like the breakdown of the relationship between Hamilton and McLaren kind of goes in tandem with the breakdown of the relationship between Mercedes and McLaren. And it's important to understand that Lewis really started testing with McLaren in 2004. His first official test was 2006. He got a full-time race seat in 2007. As a rookie, he missed the championship by a point. But 2007 was a dark season for 
for the McLaren team for a couple of reasons. One, there was a tremendous amount of bitterness between Alonzo and Hamilton and Alonzo mm-hmm. and the team. So they brought Alonzo over from Renault where he just won back-to-back titles. He comes in for one year. The relationship's a disaster. He's gone. In the meantime, yeah. that team gets caught up in this brutal cheating scandal with McLaren. They're fined $100 million. They're almost thrown out of the championship entirely, like out of the sport. And they get kicked out of the Constructors' Championship. So if you ever go back and look at the 2007 Constructors' Championship, they scored zero points. They did ultimately allow the drivers to keep their points and compete, but incredibly, McLaren wasn't able to score any points this year. So their their principal investor, which was Mercedes, and Mercedes owned about 40% of the McLaren F1 team at that point, they were pissed. Like, look, guys, we weren't involved in this cheating scandal. We didn't know what had happened. You're damaging your reputation and you're damaging our reputation. And that $100 mm-hmm. million dollar fine, Mercedes had to pay $40 million of it. So they weren't happy with what was going on. So the relationship was breaking down between Mercedes and it was breaking down between McLaren and it was breaking down between Hamilton and it was breaking down between the team. Ultimately, of course, they rebound in 08. Hamilton wins the title, which is fantastic. They go into 09 and all of a sudden... Mercedes is in a or Mercedes is or sorry Mercedes is in a position where now they're now feeding engines to two teams because prior to that when they were partnered with McLaren they weren't providing power units to anyone else on the grid McLaren was for all intents and purposes a Mercedes works team and then all of a sudden in 09 Mercedes is feeding power units to Braun and all of a sudden Braun wins the championship and McLaren has a terrible year the relationship between Hamilton and McLaren continues to sour in 09 there were actually some very testy public comments made by leadership at McLaren suggesting that the team struggles weren't a result of the car, the design, the aero, or the power units, but ultimately mm-hmm. it was because of Hamilton's quote unquote flawed driving. So there was all these seeds that were being planted and planted and planted. And then in an interview Hamilton uh, gave years later, he said, really, it came down to two things. One was in the summer of 2012, in Monaco, when he's sitting poolside, he got a cell phone call from Nicky Lauda. And if you don't know who Nicky Lauda is, highly encourage you to go back, rewatch the 2013 motion picture rush. It'll give you a great, great immersion into who he is and what he's contributed to the sport. But, yep. but Lewis gets a call from Nicky. And at the time, Lewis actually didn't think Nicky liked him because Nicky had made some very pointed comments about Lewis in the media. They had a great conversation. The relationship began to build. And then later that summer, almost as if he was being recruited by a college team, Ross Braun actually went to Lewis's mom's house and sat in the kitchen and talked about all the reasons (laughs) it would be great for him to come to Mercedes. So I think it was this backdrop of this really problematic long-term relationship with McLaren. The fact that the team was beginning to underperform, although they rebounded a little bit in 2012. In fact, they actually finished ahead of Mercedes in 2012. But ultimately that to your point, Mercedes were building and building and building for the future. I think they were able to sell Lewis on a fresh start, a fresh future. Mm-hmm. And I think they also promised that they would l- provide greater feedback to him and provide him with more of a platform to contribute to the development of the car. And I think one of the things that Hamilton was always upset about with, with McLaren was that even after they got back s- past some of that bad blood in 09 where they were criticizing him publicly, they still weren't super receptive to his ideas or feedback about developing the car. So I think that relationship was done. And I think Mercedes stepped into the picture. They recruited him beautifully as if he was a a star high school athlete. They lured him to Mercedes. 2013, the team rebounded in a big way, even though they were still rocking the V8s, they finished second in the championship and then 2014 hits and the rest is history. 
Yeah. You know, you really brought back some memories and a lot of things that uh, really stayed buried deep in my, my, my subconscious. But that whole situation, this is a, almost a completely side discussion, but the, the downfall of McLaren was this almost in slow motion. Oh, I mean, so you had much like so. Ron Dennis as the oh, team principal. Point. He'd been there for decades, and then he's kind of out of the way. And then they bring Martin Whitmarsh in as the as the team principal. And then you've got all this. It, it just really unraveled over a period of time. And it, re, you know, I I really don't think that this team started to rebound until Zach Brown came on board uh, a couple of years ago now. Because when you were just talking about those those whole. You brought back a whole bunch of like comments about how they were saying it was Lewis's driving style. It wasn't the car exactly. and all these different things. And it reminds me exactly sort of 2015 when they you know, when they had the Honda power units. It's just like oh, it's it, it's not the it's not the car. It's not the chassis. We have the best car in Formula One. And it was the same almost continuation of the same garbage. And it wasn't until that 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 previous regime was completely gone. You had Zach come in and maybe being a bit of an outsider, he goes and installs his own people like Seidel. He gets James Key. He brings in uh, Jill DeFerrin as the sporting director. He starts putting in all these people in. They divorce with Honda, which costs them another $100 million or whatever it was at the time. They make the switch to the rental, which as an interim thing worked uh, pretty good. Now they're back partnered again with the Mercedes. And over the past couple of years, it, it's really worked out. I mean, it worked out obviously well for for Honda because that was one of the things that Bertie Ecclestone did a good job of, you know, just forcing them to, uh, forcing Formula One to keep them involved uh, somehow. Anyways, uh, they, they they're still involved. They're obviously having success with uh, with Red Bull this year, but then McLaren slowly but surely starts getting back on on the right foot. But you know, it's just there there's so many different discussions that you can go down that path when you take Carlos's email. And you know, kudos to you. I mean, you you really brought up a lot of things I completely forgot. You make such a great point that if you look back at the last 10 or 15 or 20 years of Mm -hmm. McLaren Formula One racing, so much of the struggles they've had are a direct byproduct, downstream effect, knock-on effect of this Mm -hmm. cultural arrogance within the team, which is Back, totally. back to the late 2000s, yeah. you have a relationship with this unbelievable power unit supplier and you treat them like garbage. You you engage in a, a catastrophic cheating scandal for which they pick up almost half the tab. Your agreement mm-hmm. with them ensured that you pick the drivers, but they paid all of the driver's salary. That, that relationship was a recipe for failure. And then the other funny thing too is, and I forgot to mention this as well, is as as they were partnering with Mercedes to develop Formula One cars, McLaren was not so quietly going about the process of starting to build road cars that would directly compete with Mercedes road cars. So it was really this, yes. this yep. cultural arrogance. And to your point, it extended beyond the Mercedes relationship. And it was very, very much present throughout that entire Honda situation. And obviously the bad blood between Honda and McLaren spewed out into public on social media through every single mm-hmm. interview view and you're ultimately you're absolutely right none of this really began to change that cultural reset didn't really occur until zach brown came in and obviously he was refreshing for the sport he had an outsider's perspective but ultimately just he was able to rework that team philosophically and at the factory Mm -hmm. culturally and i think to your point he identified some folks that were probably older wood that needed to go and he knocked out all this old rotten wood and he started afresh and you can see it on the team you can see it in the drivers the mechanics the engineers you can hear it in 
their interviews, it's a different team than it was five or 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at the history of this team, success in the 70s, obviously uber massive success in the 80s and 90s going into the 2000s. Mid-2000s, it's starting to slowly unravel, and then it just gets really, really messy. And then the, it's, you know, it's not our car. Our car is the best. And that tone doesn't start until a lot of that dead wood is cleared out. And then after Zach comes on, then that that's, that culture of institutional arrogance starts to change where they, they start to eat a little bit of humble pie. And it's like you know what, maybe the car wasn't as good as we said it was over the past couple of years and the tone completely changes. And this is a completely different team now than it was, like you say, even a couple of years ago. And I love how they've almost come full circle when they they resurrected the papaya, that historical color that they raced with back in the 70s when they first started, when uh, Bruce McLaren started the team in his own name. And anyways, that that was a great question from, from, from Carlos. We could probably go on for another 20 minutes, but we shouldn't. We should take another break and then we come back. More mailbag or do you have another story? Uh, we've got a co- another story. Are you suggesting I'm that long winded? No more stories, but we definitely have some questions. Cool. Well, we'll get to them in just a moment. So go, don't go away, guys. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, welcome back to the show, and you're a very long-winded host myself, because if I accuse you of being long-winded, then I have to take a look in the mirror, because as my dad used to say, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, so I definitely am. uh, Anyways, back to you, my friends. It was funny, a couple of days ago, I was reading some of our Twitter follower comments, and one of the things that you and I have discussed in the past is that we never been, read the comments. Yeah, one of the things, <laughs> and I, I got a kick out of this, but not necessarily the thing I'm about to share. But in the past, you've been referred to as the chill mark, and I've been referred to on social media as the excited mark. <laughs> I like that; that kind of makes sense. I'm cool with that. But a couple of days ago, somebody was trying to describe which one of us was making a point, and somebody referred to you as the lead mark. I'm like, I mean, it's, and I'm like that, that's true, but I don't know how I should feel about that. We, we should get the Dr. Seuss thing one and thing two t-shirts or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> or tattoos on the forehead, oh you know, goodness. number one, number two, or or th- would it be one and one A or you know, it sort of becomes, to, let's not go totally. there. Let's not go I've there. got a question for you. <laughs> so this question, and I've been teasing this one for weeks. So to Matt Haxel, I apologize. We're finally getting to this question. I just wanted to make sure that we gave it some runway, some time to let the question breathe. And so we could put a little bit of time into it. Hey guys, I just wanted to say I love the podcast. I'm an American from Baltimore who is a big Red Bull and Max fan. Also, as a Gen DTS fan, your podcast has helped me get a good grasp of the technical side of Formula One. I was just wondering if I could do a mailbag question. Of course. While I appreciate Lewis as a seven-time champion, I think he is one of the top drivers in F1 of all times. Is it really fair to compare him to Michael Schumacher? Lewis, through a large part of his career, has had one of the most dominant cars, and no one's car had been 
able to his legally. Schumacher obviously had some good cars, but the distance between him and the other cars weren't such a big gap. Like if you look back, there are a good amount of Michael's wins that he wasn't even on pole to start the race. I know this sounds like a diss to Lewis, which it isn't. I just don't like how people have come to compare the two of them like Jordan and LeBron or Montana and Brady. Thanks guys. Sorry for the long message. So really the question is here, is a is it a fair comparison to index Hamilton against Schumacher, given all the considerations, teams, technology, competitors, other drivers? Is it fair? Did Hamilton benefit from a vastly superior car in an inferior field of teams? Was Michael Schumacher that good? Or did Michael Schumacher have an equally good car relative to Hamilton during the era that he drove? D, all of the above. But again, this is another great question that really has a lot of different threads that uh, you can pull on. So let's just be clear that it is an incredibly rare thing to become a Formula One world champion. It is an even rarer thing to be a multiple Formula One world champion. And it is even rarer yet to be a seven times Formula One world champion. In fact, only two people have ever done it. And it's so correctly pointed out in the message. One is Michael Schumacher and the other one is uh, Lewis Hamilton. So just based on that alone, the comparisons are just natural. And then I think that's where the discussion becomes more nuanced. And I think that's, uh, you know, he raises a bunch of really, really good points because then very much so then it becomes a a real comparison of the the 2014 and on uh, Mercedes cars and then say the 2000 to t- real early 2000 Ferraris forget or don't forget that uh, that Michael won his first uh, two world championships in the mid 90s driving for a Benetton and then switched over to Ferrari in the late 90s which was not a very competitive team at the time until you had the likes of uh, Ross Braun and Rory Byrne and and the, all those brilliant minds, Jean Todt is a team principal, but very much like Mercedes of 2014 on, the very much was a perfect storm at Ferrari in the late 90s because it was coming together off the track and on the track because they had the people off the track to design and build this brilliant car. And they had a world champion to put in that car and hopefully win races and championships uh, with it. So then I guess the real discussion comes down to it is, okay, they, they had great drivers in the car. They had great people off the track designing and building the cars. I guess the big question becomes, which was the better car? Obviously, it's two different eras in Formula One, so you can't really compare the cars head to head. But I guess when you maybe pull it apart and compare them in the context of their own eras... I would say that, yeah, the Mercedes was more dominant uh, than the the Ferrari was, but the Ferrari, by and large, probably was more often than not the the best car of that era, although there were other teams that were good. I mean, Mika Hakkinen won a title in there as well in the early 2000s. McLaren was a competitive team. But the thing was, Ferrari didn't, d- despite all the wins like and, and championships, I wouldn't say that 20 years ago, they were as dominant then as Mercedes has been now. Right? Yeah. Do you think that's a fair I take? I do. And I think it's a roundabout way to getting to the same conclusion that I drew, where I read this, cus- this question, and it was a great question, but 
I felt a little bit of friction because I grew up in the 90s and 2000s feeling the same way about Ferrari then that I think a lot of F1 fans feel about Mercedes today in the sense that this is a team that was well endowed with all of the financial resources, the people capital, the factory, all of the talent in the sport. It's where everyone wanted to grow. They had the best leadership, the best executives, they had the best driver pipeline. Mm-hmm. They they just had everything clicking. And and I I kind of didn't like coming to this realization that Mercedes today probably was and is a far more dominant package than even Ferrari was in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I think it's important to provide a little bit of context as well that Schumacher won two titles originally with Benetton in 94 and 95. There was a huge, huge, gigantic sweeping change to the world of Formula One when he made the transition over to Ferrari in 96. He finishes third in the championship. In 97, the championship goes down to the wire. And I don't want to get into the specifics, but this is one of the things that I think is really important to talk about is the fact that Lewis has never been disqualified from a championship. Michael Schumacher Mm -hmm. was disqualified from the 1997 Drivers' Championship because he intentionally tried to drive or run another driver off the track to secure a championship. So that's a black mark that is deservedly on his record, and I don't think people talk enough about. 98, he bounces back, but he finishes second. 99, they finished fifth, but there was a huge chunk of the calendar he missed. And then he ran off five titles in a row in 2001, 2, 3, 4. One of those years, he won the title in July, which was obviously problematic for the sport because you don't want the championship wrapped up when you still have six, seven, eight Grand Prix left. But it's it's a good question. And I would agree that the Mercedes as a package, as a unit, probably has been more dominant. But I don't want to take anything away from Lewis because Lewis has still been the absolute Oh, model of consistency and reliability yes. as, as a driver, as an individual. And I think he's contributed so much to the sports over the course of that, that turbo hybrid era run. So I don't know how to necessarily answer this one. I, I think I agree with your assessment that Mercedes probably has been more uniformly dominant, but Ferrari was also in an absolute powerhouse during that era when he ran off those five consecutive titles. And it wasn't even just the five consecutive titles with with Schumacher, right? So they won right up to 2004. 2005 was a noticeable disappointment for that team. They dis- they bounced back in 2006. Schumacher finished second. And then, of course, Kimi won the title for Ferrari in 07. Mm-hmm. And then Felipe Massa just lost at the very last lap on the last race of the season in Brazil in 08. So they did have a really great dominant run, but ultimately I think Mercedes probably did have a more dominant package, but I don't think that should take anything away from Lewis and his contributions to that team. Because I think one of the things people forget is the drivers provide an awful lot of influence into how these cars are designed and built. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a couple of other things to consider here as well. I mean, the success for Ferrari was a bit of a slow burn. It it took them several years to really build up and get to the point where they were competitive again. They're winning races, they're winning championships, whereas, well, I mean, the same thing for for, uh, Mercedes, but the, the, the big difference is that Ferrari did it in the same sort of era. They didn't have this dramatic switch of uh, a completely new formula, the, the the new, you know, changing from the normally aspirated engines to the to to the turbo hybrid era. And I think that's part of the 
part of the discussion as well is after 2014, maybe up until 2018, I mean, 14, 15, 16, I mean, they're almost like in 17, where they were basically the undisputed superpower, if you will, in, in Formula One. And I don't want to take away too much uh, from Ferrari and that Raikkonen Vettel era because they had some success, most notably in 2018 when when Seb ran Lewis pretty close yep. and challenged yep. him for two thirds of the season before that started falling apart for him as well. But yeah, it's it, it really is a, a really fascinating discussion to have because it is there there are so many twists and turns to it but yeah i i guess really the answer comes down to it is is really your perspective like Great. how you know like how objective are you looking at it so i i think your own personal bias on the topic will probably opinionate or form your opinions on this discussion. i like that the only other thing i would comment on as well is as critical as people have been about lewis's run of domination and the mercedes domination since 2014 this is exactly how people were talking about ferrari and exactly how they were talking about michael schumacher right through 2005 the sport's boring it's too predictable it's dominated by a single team mm-hmm. it's dominated by a single driver so the criticism that we hear today familiar argument yeah isn't it? yeah it's it's very similar to what you and I knew and heard for years during that previous era. And then things got a little unpredictable for a couple of years. And then, of course, you had that run, Red Bull run, and then we've had the, the Mercedes run. But ultimately, that's what 2022 is set to start changing, which is this domination by the powerhouse teams by throttling back expenditures and trying to create a, a sense of parity to level the playing field. Mm-hmm. Cool. cool. I've got another question for you. Are you ready or would you like to take another break? Up to you. Let's let's take one final break and then we'll come back and we'll finish up with whatever we got in the mailbag. So don't go away, guys. We'll be back in just one moment. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. You're with Mark and Mark again. We're about to turn down and dim the lights here. But before we do, we do still have some, obviously, some awesome questions and tweets and emails to go through. So... Let's let's tee up the next one. So this is a really, really great, very technical question that absolutely gets at the core of F1. So I'm going to read this question. Oh, and look, we're out of time. (laughs) (laughs) This is a, a question from one of our great listeners, BJ Miller. And again, brace yourself because this question is a zinger. And it's probably actually my favorite question we've ever had. Here's another random question for you. Why do the drivers always drink out of those water bottles with the extremely long straws, even when not in the cars? They're always walking around the paddock with them, etc. Do the teams monitor their water intake with them or something? I would think, and I, I, I'm just going kind of off the, the, the top of my head here, I mean... Formula One now is completely different than it was uh, 20, 25 years ago. And Michael Schumacher was that guy that really took the fitness in Formula One and, and and really took it to the to the next level. I mean, not that guys before that were unfit, but he really took it to the next level where you almost had to be an Olympic ca- uh, caliber athlete to drive uh, one of these cars. And I mean, his his work, work ethic in and out of the car is, is undisputed, obviously some of the naughty behavior in races and qualifying that really stand out as notable bookmarks or something completely different. But let's just put it this way. The one thing that I kind of like to refer it to is uh, is cycling, you know, uh, because it's something I do myself. And 
one thing that uh, the, that I'm doing if I'm out riding multiple hours and uh, on the bike is I'm constantly eating. I'm constantly um, getting nutrition. And when I start off a ride, you know, I'll, I'll have like some, you know, some energy bars and some gels and things like that in the back pocket of my cycling jersey. So if I want something a bit of a slow burn, after about half an hour, I'll take a couple of bites on an energy bar. If I want something uh, a little bit more available, uh, then I'll have like I'll have like a like a sports drink in my water bottle, or I'll have the gel because you know that's easily and quickly uh, metabolized. Now Formula One being Formula One, I would not be surprised that they're taking this to a whole new level in terms of making sure that the drivers are properly hydrated. That uh, you know, especially when you know that they're going into the car and and these guys are. You know, they're, they're not quite skin and bones, but when they're going in there to very, very trim and and very known weight that they come out of the car two to three kilos lighter, so five or six pounds lighter at the end of the weight or race, I mean, that's all going to be uh, water loss and things like that. So they're going to make sure that they're getting the, the, the right amount of nutrition and, uh, and making sure that they're getting the vitamins, electrolytes, all those different things uh, in their bodies. I would think that those, um, those bottles that I know exactly what BJ's talking about, I think probably some of that's it's functional, but I would think a lot of it's uh, probably branding as well, especially if you see the ones that are like the, the, the Red Bull ones that are very much similar to their um to to their cans but they're big i mean uh, this you know this water bottle i have here i mean you kind of can't really see how big it is i guess if i hold it up beside my head but i mean they they are quite large and you quite often see them walking around and sipping on these things but i guess you can also stick it underneath um, the helmet as well if you're sticking you're you're sitting in the car before you plug everything in and because i mean they they do hydrate in the car still i I would assume you're right and i did a little bit of research on this one as well before the podcast because i wanted to get a sense of what they're actually drinking is it is it red bull definitely not is it lucasade definitely not Gatorade, maybe, but it sounds like almost all of the drivers on the circuit in the championship now have dedicated full-time nutritionists and they come up with a cocktail that uh, obviously not a cocktail with alcohol, but with, with different types of (laughs) electrolytes and salines and things like that. So having some white Russians, they've all got their own formula. I think we've talked about on the show, every car has a kind of like a camel bag of fluid behind the driver. And then that's connected to the helmet with a long kind of tube. And then there's a button on the steering wheel they press and it actually shoots water into their mouth so they don't have to exert energy sucking. But the water bottle that BJ Miller's talking about here, the one with that super long straw, the reason it has that super long straw is so that when they've got their helmet on, they can still drink. So when they've got their helmet on, they're walking around, they're not necessarily in the car yet, they can drink out of the same water bottle so they don't have to carry two. That's why it has that super long straw, but you're absolutely right. Unique concoction in every single bottle. And the reason they carry it around everywhere is exactly like you said, marketing, because it's got Lucozade on the bottle, it's got Red Bull on the bottle, it's got Gatorade on the bottle, whoever it would ultimately be. And one final yeah. question, and I think this is a really great question to end the show on, especially since we spent so much time during this show tonight talking about the changes coming in 2022. We know it's designed to increase parity, but at the same time, we know that we're going to get farther away from the F1 that we know, which is kind of a world built on this heavy reliance of innovation, which creates costs. We also know that the cars aren't going to be as fast as they've been in the past. And that may change as teams continue to develop and innovate and find ways to break through the formula that's being imposed upon them. But Steve Mm -hmm. Williams asks a really great question. He says, do you think 
we are currently at the pinnacle of Formula One in terms of speed. With all the changes next year and again in 2025, and in 2025 is referring to the power unit, which may become 2026, I fear that the cars will never be as quick as they are today, which have been gradually fine-tuned over years and years to get where they are now. That's a great point. And honestly, that's my initial reaction is I've felt similar almost every single time that we've had a major change in the way that Formula One cars have been designed. But this this time seems a little bit different. It seems a little bit more profound. I mean, when you look at the current formula, which was introduced in 2017, it was really quite radical at the time because it really the, the changes that they introduced for 2017 really increased like the cornering speeds because they were saying, I think it was like at Barcelona. I think if you go through that uh, complex of turns through, I think it's two, three, and four that they were increasing the cornering speeds by something like. 40, 50 kilometers an hour, you know, through the corner, which just seems absolutely insane. But this is almost like they've taken the entire Formula One Etch-A-Sketch and shaken it up and then completely starting from from a blank slate. But yeah, I, I completely understand that and I share that sentiment as well. But the one thing that I've learned by watching probably way too much Formula One over the course of my entire life is that Whatever they do to try and slow these cars down is they are always able to find a way to compensate for that and speed the cars up. Because, I mean, remember 20 years ago, they had those stupid tires that they had, like, you know, which was like an artificial way that they wanted to slow the cars down. Yeah, cornering speeds. And, you know, it never really worked. And those tires were, you know, frankly, a bit of a joke. But... They always find a way, the engineers and the designers always find a way to build faster Formula One cars. Now, I guess the the $64,000 question is, sure, maybe next year the the teams or the cars will be slower, but will, you know, how much slower and then ultimately how much will they be able to to, to, to figure it out? And, you know, th- there's the possibility that they'll be even quicker. I mean, we just, it, it's too much of an unknown. You've actually talked to me back from the edge. As much as I talk positively about 2022 and the hope that we're going to see increased parity in the sport and more competitive championships, I've always been so so consumed by this idea that F1 is going to become less of a prototype series and more of a spec series. So something like IndyCar and NASCAR, where there's really uniform standards around chassis, sometimes shared chassis, maybe one engine supplier, maybe two. I've always been kind of scared that the sport's going to go too far that way, because one of the things that makes F1 so great is these cars are so close to being straight up prototypes. And the FIA, Formula One, they've always had to impose things on the teams to slow down the cars, Mm -hmm. to slow down the the cornering speeds. But ultimately, the teams and the engineers and the designers, they always kind of break through those formula. And then the team, the sport has to reset kind of take that etch-a-sketch, like you said, and shake it up and start over. But this is probably the most drastic example that we've seen of Formula One and the FIA getting together and shaking up that etch-a-sketch. We've never seen anything quite so drastic in terms of standardization of parts, standard aero designs, and things like that. So I think you've helped kind of reignite some excitement in me in terms of what the designers and engineers Mm -hmm. are going to be capable of doing. And you make that great example where 
10, 15 years ago, 15 years ago, Formula One introduced those horrendous, horrendous groove tires. So the sport actually had a choice. We want to slow down cars because they're getting too fast in the corners. We could just put on skinnier tires or we could leave the existing tires and just put grooves on them. So they went grooved. And the thought was that if there's less contact patch, there'll be less grip, which means the cars will have to go through the corner slower. But they had a really Mm -hmm. wide open formula for aero design. So the wildest aero designs we've ever seen in the history of formula one occurred during that era because the engineers and the teams were spending hundreds of billions of dollars to overcome the grip issue associated with the tire so the wildest f1 designs we've ever seen from an aero perspective came through that period and you're totally right 2017 the cars were wider they were longer they were faster this is probably at least for some time i think the pinnacle of what we're going to see in terms of g-force mechanical grip top line speed Mm -hmm. i think it's going to be something of a reset but i'm also like you in the sense that we've been through this before this change is more drastic but when you have 140 or 150 million dollars and hundreds of employees whose entire focus is on transforming that car into a weapon on the racetrack these teams are going to be able to break mm-hmm. through this and whether it's next year or five years or 10 years i'm confident that the cars we're going to see will be faster than what we have today oh yeah i, th- I think it's inevitable i think the question is uh, is it going to be sooner rather than later and I, I i just think that the the rate at which we just see technology in general in, improve and increase and get ba- bigger and well maybe not bigger but get better and faster all the time and in such a small relative time frame just in in all other aspects of our lives i, I just think that yeah if there is a delta between these cars and the new cars the new cars are lacking for i guess uh you know lack of a better word then i I think it won't be too long before that deficit is overcome and improved upon i I think it's just almost inevitable i absolutely agree and 10 years from now we'll have to do another reset to bring the pack closer (laughs) together once uh once again, and then one final point, and I don't think you will probably even want to comment on this, but excitedly last week, I'd stumbled across a photo of Haley Bieber on Complex wearing a retro Benetton team jacket, like varsity jacket. And I was very excited oh, right. about this yep. because I was thinking that this might be a reissue. It might be something that Benetton's going to start marketing again. Of course, as we alluded to a couple of minutes ago, Benetton, the Italian the Italian clothing manufacturer used to be deeply invested in Formula One. Um, but Benetton mm-hmm. actually hit me up on Twitter and we had a conversation. And it sounds like it's not oh, a cool. it's not something that's being reintroduced to their line. It's not a special edition. Somebody in Haley Bieber's camp actually tracked down this. And Benetton actually thinks it was produced in either 90 or 93, that specific jacket. But somebody in Mm -hmm. Haley Bieber's camp actually went out of their way to find this jacket for her. Um, And then her image wearing this Benetton retro Formula One jacket was splashed all over the internet. So probably something that only interests me. But again, anytime I see somebody in mainstream pop culture wearing Formula One gear, I get a little bit excited. So just wanted to share that with the crowd. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, if you go back and think about it, those Benetton cars in the late 80s and 90s, they were very avant-garde in the way that they designed and presented their cars, their livery, uh, livery and whatnot. And they, I think they really brought a lot of glam into in, into Formula One, as, as, as if it was lacking already. <laughs> but I think they certainly made it a, an impression 
upon the sport during their time as uh, as a team. Anyways, is that it? Is the mailbag? Oh, it's not. But I think we have talked our listeners' ears off a one enough for one night. I think we also need to get Pretty rested. Much, right? We have an absolute bonkers Formula One weekend coming, as we alluded to earlier. Yep. We're going to see that unveil of the 2022 template car on Thursday, which is exciting. Friday we have qualifying. Saturday, we have sprint qualifying. Sunday, we have the Grand Prix. This is going to be an action-packed Formula One major this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a a great place uh, to leave it. And on behalf of myself and Mr. Mark Hamilton, thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for those of you that joined us on the live chat on uh, YouTube. If you want to get in touch, by all means do so. Easiest way is on Twitter at ScuderiaF1Pod or via email at ScuderiaF1Pod at gmail.com. And that's it. That's a wrap. Get in touch. Say hi. And we'll be back in a couple of days with the latest news as we get ready for the first major of the year. And until then, have a great week. And we'll talk to you guys again very, very soon. Bye for now.